Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron canon of Patrick O'Brien. As a matter of fact, Ian, we're on the last chapter of that canon. Can you catch us up and tell us what we have in store? With pleasure, Mike. This is quite the occasion. It's hard to say the end, right? But for many definitions, here comes the end. Not for the show, but for the canon. Last time, in the penultimate chapter, Stephen and Jack had received word from home. We knew that the Chilean Navy was down to very little in terms of ships or trained men. Stephen had been experiencing visions of Christine. Peru was about to invade the north of Chile once they'd obtained naval stores. The surprise, the ship O'Higgins and the soldiers had attacked the naval base in Valdivia, taken the treasury and taken the naval stores. Meanwhile, rival Lindsay had been killed in a duel. The surprise was about to be seized and Jack had planned to cut out the Esmeralda, the royalist ship. That was last time, Mike. This time we have the last of the church services in the canon. We explore the story of Job or Job. We attack Callao and the Esmeralda, our, our last of many cutting out expeditions. We deal with shifting local government. We deal with the lack of prize money or payment of any kind as Jack tries to meet his obligations and obtain his life's dream without getting himself killed in the process. So as, as we often say, Mike, and for sure it's for real this time, it's still all to play for for Jack Aubrey <laughs> in this chapter. Too true, Ian, too true. Oh, yeah. Well, we open on what O'Brien describes as a strikingly beautiful morning in November, and he makes a reference to Guy Fawkes. So presumably it's early November. Now, right. Ian, you helped me here. I appreciated it. This left <laughs> me scratching my head. I'm thinking, wait, wait, last chapter, the townspeople were wishing the officers, you know, the surprise Merry Christmas. And now what have we gone back in time, jumped to next November? Have the 1800s Chilean townsfolk started the commercial rush to Christmas, you know, a couple <laughs> centuries early? Or was it, as you suggested, Ian, just the locals saying an English phrase that they knew and, you know, not really actually quite Christmas time yet. So possibly yeah. so. I, I guess so. They might just as well have said, God save the king. Right. Well, Jack is watching a boat from the Isaac Newton, the former Lisbon packet, bringing over the European foremost authority on voles. Now, mm -hmm. it so happens that this member of the Royal Society is also in holy orders and is going to be delivering the surprises sermon this morning. And everybody's a little bit excited. They're going to have a real parson aboard here, not sailing with them, but aboard for the sermon mm -hmm. here. Well, Jack tells Stephen that he thinks the Reverend Mr. Hare has been sailing long enough on the packet to be impressed by Surprise's snowy canvas and Mr. Harding's blackened yards. Stephen, in reply, gives a brutish grunt, puts down his telescope and says, he's only an aberrant frigate bird. Those curious marks were certainly the excrement of some companion. <laughs> so we have, in this last chapter... A beautiful snapshot of Jack and Stephen's personalities here, I think. <laughs> Besides, bird poop on your clothing, it's good luck, right? Everybody knows that. <laughs> That's right. So here comes this guy, the Reverend Mr. Hare, coming aboard. He does not, however, admire the ship's rigging, much, I guess, to the distress of the First Lieutenant. He's nervous, though, about how his sermon is going to go down. He gulps down the uh, pre-dinner sherry, looking, as O'Brien says, wistfully at the decanter. And which of us hasn't felt that way before an anxious meal? Um, he comes on deck and he's comforted by this familiar cry, the familiar naval cry of Jews and Roman Catholics fall out. And of course, as O'Brien reminds us, the Jews and the Roman Catholics did not in fact fall out any more than the various kinds of Muslim, the Orthodox Christians, or the plain wicked heathens. And uh, so everybody's going to stick around to hear this new character give his sermon, no matter what their what their denomination is. Mr. Hare, an aspiring author, it says in the text, began his hesitant reading of a neighbor's sermon based upon a text from Job. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. And, and Mike, this sounds like a really great biblical reference. Help us out if we dig a little bit deeper. What was going on? With the writing of the words in a book. 
Well, it's it's interesting because I I like you when I first read that going, what? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. What kind of sermon do you make of that? But it led me straight back to the Old Testament book of, as you say, I say Job. Some people, you know, I think you're part of the world, maybe Job. Uh, I remember my my son when he was a youngster saying the book of Job. I want to I want to read about getting a job. But so, <laughs> so this is Job chapter nineteen verse twenty three. And and if you remember, this is a, a the kind of the synopsis of the whole book. Uh, Job is a very good, very prosperous family man, said by God to be the most devout man on earth. And at this time, Satan is still an angel in heaven. And God asked this angel, Satan, the adversary, as the name translates, if while he was walking along the earth, he saw Job's righteousness. And the angel says, well, Job was only righteous because God protects Job and gives him all these things. He says, you know, Job would curse you if he lost everything that he's been given. Well, God says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll let you take away everything but Job's life to see if Job will curse me or remain righteous. So Satan works his ways. Job loses everything, his property, prosperity, his family, his health even though he has not sinned. And he's trying to make sense out of this. And Job's three friends, neighbors, tell Job that he must have sinned, you know, for this to have happened. And that's why God is doing this. Well, Job stands firm. He condemns his friend's beliefs. He stays faithful. He makes an assertion that we're about to hear about that follows this verse, and herein lies the sermon. And this assertion is about his belief. And ultimately, as the book comes to an end, he has a new wife and new children and a new fortune. And, you know, I, I was scratching my head going, okay, so this is clearly a great Easter egg. You know, what's going on here? Well, we've got Mr. Hare, this fellow of the Royal Society in Holy Orders, an aspiring author, O'Brien points out, and is delivering a neighbor's sermon. So is this meant to be one of Job's neighbors? Ah. Not Job speaking these words. Is this aspiring author, is he meant to point to O'Brien? Who knows? Well, we do know that like Job, O'Brien and Stephen have both lost a great deal recently. And and I wonder, you know, is this an Easter egg pointing at their losses? And Stephen like Job, in the midst of his losses, remains faithful and may, in fact, be on his way to new love, just as it turns out that Job was. But as so often happens with our O'Brien references, perhaps the most interesting part of this quote is what comes just after it. If you look inside, look underneath the rug, go down the rabbit hole, open up that Easter egg. So this small section, uh, you know, this one line from Job chapter 19 sets up Job's glorious declaration, which is immortalized even further in Handel's Messiah. Right. If, if we read on a little bit, oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll. The next verse says that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. And then we get the verse that's familiar to everybody who loves Handel's Messiah. Let's take a bit of a listen to a clip from the final section of Handel's Messiah. Oh, Mike, it's a beautiful piece. It's a beautiful 
moment in the whole work of the Messiah as well, coming right after the Hallelujah Chorus, opening up the final section. And it's comforting, right? And this is what the story of Job is a little bit about, right? Getting comfort. Right, absolutely. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I almost think that Orion is signaling us that we're meant to go back and listen to this because church, a little bit unusually, ends with hymns. And he points out that Awkward Davis is singing in a strikingly true basso profundo. So mm. I think it's like, okay, go get that copy of Handel. Listen it up because I've just been tipping you towards it here. Excellent. Plus it's Christmassy, right? It's this season. So it's, right, it's great. Right. <laughs> we'll take it. Oh, fantastic. Really great Easter egg. Um, it's only two hours and 19 minutes to listen to all of the Messiah nonstop on YouTube. You can do it. Come on, it's a quiet time of the year. <laughs> Meanwhile, besides the comfort of music and the comfort of scripture, we've got the comfort of booze. Uh, American rum, in addition to the wine that he had at dinner, contributes to a bit of an unsteady gait on the part of Parson Hare, God bless him. And Jack and Stephen have to take special measures to make sure he makes it back to the Isaac Newton without coming to a sticky end, which is the kind of bit of ship-to-ship business that we've seen a few times with a few different characters in the canon. Not before, I don't think, A Man of the Cloth, but there you go. There's a first time for everything. The packet's master now tells Jack that two large merchantmen, one of them from Liverpool and one from Boston, are moored in Callao alongside the Esmeralda. Now, this is the Peruvian ship that we've spoken about before, or the royalist control ship, we should say, that we've spoken about before. And this is clearly setting something running in Jack's mind here. Uh, He asks for these Royal Society members to wait for word from the Ringle and to have the, the two of them who are returning to London deliver a report on Jack's planned Esmeralda action over to the Admiralty before the new South African squadron is completed. So here we go, Mike. The the big question that's been hanging over us all the way through the book is dropped right in front of us again. Is there just one more chance in this very, very final chapter for some glory and distinction for Jack? Touching a belaying pin, no doubt. He clearly thinks so because he's getting ready for clearing the channels for his dispatch to go home quickly, even before he's planned and executed the, uh, the cutting out. But let's see. And we get straight in to the action now. We don't get any of the planning. We are brought straight to the moment where, on Wednesday evening, the surprise, disguised to look like a merchantman, which sounds a lot like our friend Cochrane, right? Disguised to look like a merchantman, sails into Callao with the Ringle a mile off the coast and the Isaac Newton hull down in the west. As the boat, commanded by midshipman Hansen, comes alongside Esmeralda on the larboard side, the surprises Larboard Watch gathers up their weapons and prepares the boats for launch. The starboard guns open fire on the Esmeralda, getting off three murderous broadsides before the Esmeralda herself finally replies. And then general action starts up. The two ships are hammering one another, almost shot for shot. Jack brings the helm hard over, so the opposite side, the opposite battery of guns on the surprise is brought into action. Fresh gun crews take over on the surprise, and the Peruvian's rate of fire diminishes. She's had four of her 12-pounders dismounted. So it looks like, in classic Jack Aubrey form, this is intense ship-to-ship action, but things are going the surprises way so far. Right, Mike? Yeah, it, it, it is. And then Esmeralda is sort of inexplicably silent for a few moments, and they realize it's been this shocking accident in her magazine. So you know, she can't fire right now because there's been this you know, apparently explosion or something. Well, Jack and a crew come up one side of the Esmeralda from his barge while the Larbert boat's crews go up the other side. And most of the Esmeraldas, unlike the surprises, are not used to this kind of battle and are forced below. As the light outside fades, the big fortress guarding you know this harbor, the artillery it, which has been silent so far, nobody really knows why, suddenly opens fire. And on the Esmeralda, the Peruvian officers who have seen Jack because of his uniform are right, you know, really trying to get at Jack to destroy you know, the enemy's commander here. Despite the intense fighting, Jack sees that the two other merchantmen there in the port are raising colored lights and realizes this is a pre-arranged signal with the fortress so that they'll know who kind of fr- who's friend and who's foe. Right. And he hollers for his coxswain to go back to the surprise and have Mr. Huell 
hoist the same colored lights and move the surprise around in the dark to fool the fortress so they can't tell who the attacker is. Well, racing back into a dense mob fighting around the main hatchway, a pistol ball strikes Jack in the left shoulder, knocking him flat, and a dark-faced man passes a sword right through Jack's thigh before Awkward Davis destroys the man you know, with a, with a really enormous blow. And Hanson, meanwhile, stands guard over Jack, fighting off others until he and Awkward Davis can get the sword out and pull Jack to the side. Well, the fortress gunners are now confused, so they just start shooting at everything. The Peruvians remaining on deck surrender, and Jack orders his men to unmoor the Esmeralda as he ties up his leg. The fortress increases their gunfire on the Esmeralda as if they realize that the, you know, the battle has now changed hands. And his hands stand by to loose topsails, but Hanson and Davies are working together to cut through this enormous cable, which, you know, very unusually had attached them to the mole. As they get cut the cable, they move away from the mole, and Jack says hoarsely, Thank you, Horatio. You're a very good fella. Now take her out, will you? And O'Brien tells us that Jack feels, you know, an ease rise through his pain as they start to move into the darkness. And he stays with him until back aboard the surprise, he's being handed down on into his own sickbay and he loses consciousness. Wow. Wow. You couldn't ask for much more intensive an action than that to cap the final chapter in this, the final complete book in the canon. I love two little things about this moment, Mike, before we get into the historical side. Thank you, Horatio. You're a very good fellow. This is the moment when he calls Hanson by his first name. So Hanson is alongside Pullings and Babington and Maturin and all the other really, really, really close friends who get first named. Assigning the midshipman to take her out also gives me a little echo of midshipman Blakeney in the uh, Peter Weir movie, who is put in command of the ship while uh, while Jack Aubrey is away doing his uh, doing his gallant stuff. So a really, really nice moment and the, oh, the ease coming. It's, I'm, I'm right there with Jack. And if you're interested in this, we followed how the campaign of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin in Latin America closely parallels the, the similar campaign fought by Thomas Cochran. So this action to cut out the Esmeralda was a real-world action. The Esmeralda was there. Uh, it was in Callao. It was under the leadership, as we know, of Thomas Cochrane. It took place in November 1820. So, Mike, the, the month of the calendar is right here. Right. The context for the action was a little bit different. Uh, in the real world, Cochrane and the leading Chilean figures were, were in a disagreement. They'd pretty much fallen out over how best to strike at the royalists. And you could say that the action was Cochrane's way of taking matters into his own hands a little. The broad idea for the attack, though, was pretty much the way it's described here. A surprise assault, entering the port at night with boats, seizing the Esmeralda with borders, then cutting her out. In the real action, Cochrane did a bit of extra preparation. If, if you remember the sort of special forces style rehearsal over and over again that Jack Aubrey did before cutting out the Diane in Letter of Mark, well, that's what Cochrane did in the real world here to prepare um, all the uh, all the competence for, for this particular action. The ruse of copying the signal lanterns was the same, a, a classic piece of Cochrane deception. The two merchantmen here in the fictional action were actually two neutral frigates that were seen in the real world action, but they played the same role. The wounds to Cochrane were very similar as well. Cochrane was wounded in the action, including a wound to his thigh that left him directing the final stages of the action, sitting on the deck of the prize with his leg bound up. The sword belt injury that we're going to hear about for Jack Aubrey seems to have been a creation by Patrick O'Brien, but that, that sounds absolutely fine. It was a really important moment for the history of Chile, though. The effect of the action on the local balance of naval power was pretty profound. Spain totally lost control of the sea area around Chile. Uh, the Chilean Navy got to be an independent fighting force from, from this point onwards. Nice. So one last time, Mike, we give a nod to Thomas Cochran, and I think we get a, give a nod to O'Brien as well for weaving the real world history so fluently into the, uh, into the fictional story here. Absolutely. Ah, well, Jack, who had been brought aboard the night before, 
sleeps through all the ship's typical morning noises much louder, but wakes when he hears Stephen explaining to Jacob that the bullet struck the buckle of his sword belt, of Jack's sword belt, flattening the metal but leaving the bone intact. And Jacob replies that the captain is fortunate beyond all reason since the sword had gone all the way through his thigh without piercing an important artery. Jack very happily wishes them a very good morning and asks if they've made a decent offing and if Esmeralda is under their lee. They're, they're kind of taken aback that he, he's awake, but <laughs> they report that, yes, indeed, Esmeralda is under their lee and that you know they can no longer see the shore. Jack asks for something to drink, and Jacob is once again amazed to see Jack, as the text says, drinking like a thirsty horse. And <laughs> Jacob gives Jack joy of his victory. Stephen also shakes Jack's hand, blesses him, and asks if he feels much pain. Jack says he doesn't feel much pain, but he would like a little something to eat to set him up because he has a very important letter to write. Right, 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 right. So now is the time to get the word out. But it's, it's not a completely straightforward story as to how and in which direction the word's going to be sent out. To set the scene and get started with his writing task, Jack needs a bit of sustenance. So Stephen gives him eggs beaten up with milk, which is at least a little, a little bit better than thin gruel. Jack requests that Mr. Harding, who's on the prize, and Mr. Adams, his secretary, should come over. He calls for excellent paper, for pens, and for what he calls right black ink, so that he can write his official letter. Harding reports that the Esmeralda is not too damaged, nothing at least below the waterline, and Harding gladly accepts Jack's request to sail her into Valparaiso as the prize commander. He's prepared a butcher's bill, a list of casualties for Jack's report, and that becomes part of the dispatch. In answer to a question from Jack, Harding suggests that Mr. Hansen should be mentioned by name in the report because of the shrewd blows that he gave out to the enemy whilst guarding Jack. Um, and also a mention should be given to a member of the carpenter's crew who'd lost his arm whilst making the surprise fast to the Esmeralda. And this is all going pretty much as you'd think. Jack asks Stephen to listen as he slowly dictates this report, asks Stephen to suggest any changes before he, they get written down fair. That There's this little bit of business as well about the ink and about how he doesn't want to make any corrections, um, which just briefly reminded me of the, the notion of Patrick O'Brien sitting writing in presumably indelible, oh. uh, un, unsmudgeable ink of his own on paper and pen here as he writes as an author, but that was a little... Little side note. Um, nice. He's trying to get the report aboard the packet and off to England as soon as possible. We already heard that he's lined up the, uh, the, the transit over to the packet. Stephen raises a new question, though. He asks whether Jack has considered the particular difficulties presented by this letter. And Jack says, well, this is a totally routine letter. It's not difficult for me at all. I, I know what I need to include. I know the way I like to phrase things. He describes a, a number of these that he's written. But Stephen explains that this letter is not an ordinary matter for the Admiralty because the Surprise is a private ship. She's here on a hydrographical expedition. There was the added but not expressed condition that she might be there to help the independent and Republican Chileans form a navy. But she's not officially there in the guise of what you might call official regime change. So strictly, she's doing something a little bit under the counter here. So this, this presents a challenge, right? It does. It does. It's not, and, and, you know, it's a challenge and clearly not what Jack had in mind. So Stephen kind of lays out the situation. He suggests that Jack, not as, you know, somebody in the Royal Navy, but as commander of the Chilean Navy, now that Lindsay is dead, yeah. write to O'Higgins, the director supremo, or his successor, whoever is in that position now, since Jack plans to take the Esmeralda back to Valparaiso for the Chilean Navy, thus guaranteeing Chile's naval superiority and independence. And as he suggests this, Stephen you know, watches Jack grow old before his eyes. You know, he's already you know, super pale from his wounds, but Stephen sees all the living joy drained from his face. And the text says, now it was the Jack Aubrey of 70 or even more. And I'm reading this thinking, yeah, boy, I get that. Boy, that's a, that's a, yeah. I told <laughs> to get that sight every day shaving. Yeah, that's a scary <laughs> thing. Well, Stephen tells Jack not to grieve. This is all in line with the ministry's intentions. 
but those intentions cannot be publicly expressed or avowed in print. Stephen assures Jack that the ministry will be just as pleased with this result as they would be with a victory over an acknowledged enemy. Stephen also believes that the Supreme Director will assert that Jack did not exceed local orders given in a great emergency with Peru preparing to invade Chile. And Stephen asked Jack to let him write a private letter to Sir Joseph and send it via the Royal Society members, as Jack had intended. And then Stephen will write a separate letter announcing the Chilean victory and confirming their independence and send it off to O'Higgins and San Martin, you know, the, the, the leaders of the independence movement here. He will also thank those leaders and their colleagues for their direction and unfailing support. So mm-hmm. this no longer becomes Jack doing it on his own. Stephen very is very smartly <laughs> putting it all together, writing yeah. the history out here. And he says he'll have Ringel take that letter ahead to Valparaiso because they also need to know about this victory as soon as possible. You know, we remember that when last we left, Jack and the surprise could not touch ground because his ship was about to be seized. You know, <laughs> the Chilean authorities had turned a little bit against him there with that prefect. So Jack thanks Stephen, begs his pardon for forgetting his real status, and asks Stephen to please remember Horatio's conduct in his letter to Sir Joseph. It's really great. Uh, by the way, I love this little bit of, of balance that we have here in the early part of the canon. And of course, in the Master and Commander movie, we had all these moments where Stephen's desires to do botanizing and naturalizing were thwarted by Jack's service imperative. And here, right at the end of what we now know as the complete canon, we've got Jack's service imperative being thwarted by Stephen's um, agenda and his wise counsel as well, right? He's... He's not getting in Jack's way, but he is putting a little bit of necessary jeopardy in front of what might have seemed like a slam dunk for Jack to get this news home and to get it out into the public. So Stephen and Jacob work together on composing and encoding this letter to Sir Joseph. He gets Jack's wavering signature on the letter and thinks to himself, only half of him there at all, the poor dear soul. And I think we're meant to wonder... Uh, how much of Jack's infirmity here is his physical injuries and how much of it is the is the flag sickness, his last-ditch worry about whether this is going to get him the, the advancement that he's looking for. Up on deck, though, Mr. Huell has got matters in hand. He arranges the blue cutter to take Stephen over to the Lisbon packet. Huell says that the people on the surprise are uneasy, so ask for a little update on how the captain is doing. And Stephen says, you should not be uneasy. Even though Captain Aubrey was much knocked about, had lost much blood, he has nonetheless eaten well and will be sleeping again soon. And Huell says, thank God. And several hands within earshot nod with grave satisfaction. And Mike, we know that the surprise is a ship where news um, about the, the, the fate of the ship and the fate of our captain travels faster. This is a great moment for a little smile. Over on the Isaac Newton then, Stephen hands over the letter to Dobson. He received hearty congratulations from all the Royal Society fellows there. He gave them a brief account of the action. And back on the surprise, he goes in to check on his invalids, including Jack. He remembers in the past having spoken of Captain Aubrey's power of healing like a young dog. But as the text says, under the influence of a certain piety or perhaps of mere seaborne superstition, he brushed the thought aside. And like we say, there's still ambiguity about whether Jack is set low by the physical impact of his injuries, or as you said, Mike, the the emotional impact. He goes back to the cabin. He has to write this letter to the Chilean authorities now, and he does it with great zeal and conviction. Jacob gives it the once-over, says time is important. There's, There's nothing worth changing here for what he calls a mere subjunctive. So Stephen goes over to Mr. Harding, says the captain is sleeping and needs the rest in his condition but the news of the victory must reach Valparaiso as soon as possible. He'll take personal responsibility, says Stephen, if Harding would please put the letter aboard the Ringle and direct Mr. Reed to deliver it as soon as he can. And there's a great moment of trust here. I mean, Harding, by the way, we've had very little from ever since he's been first lieutenant of the surprise. We've had really, really thin bits of characterization from him, but we've got another sign of trust here between Aubrey and his subordinates. Harding says... 
The letter is, of course, agreed between you and the captain. And when Stephen says, it is, that's enough for Harding. He doesn't ask for written orders. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't question. He knows the bond between Stephen and Jack. He knows the importance of the letter. He says, if Stephen Maturin says, it's okay, then it's okay. The Ringle takes the dispatch and speeds away, Mike, for Valparaiso. Mike, this might be a good moment for us to speed away for our own port of call. Um, and grab a little glass of something sustaining. What do you say? Oh, great idea. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. As we rejoin the story, we're not there, but O'Brien tells us that when Ringel arrived and the news was received in Valparaiso, it got an ecstatic reception. There was music, dancing speeches, heroic drinking, mostly by the Royal Navy and the, the inland local Indians, and, as the text says, widespread allegations of unchastity. So people were frolicking <laughs> day and night. Oh, uh, merely, un- merely allegations, though, Mike. <laughs> merely allegations. That's right. Merely allegations. <laughs> right, right. You know, just, just because somebody put it on Twitter. No, wait, wait. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, unfortunately, that excellent wind that had brought the ringle down so quickly had turned foul and back, you know, with the surprise and her prize, the Esmeralda had lost her mizzen and its top with everything else on the journey, delaying them considerably. But when they finally arrive, there's still popular enthusiasm and dinners to celebrate. And as they get there, Jack prepares to attend one with Carrera, the you know the local junta leader, uh, as he's supposedly his last dinner before he leaves to go with all the leadership in San Diego. Well, Stephen worries that Jack's ill temper might be a sign of a late developing complication from one of his wounds. You know, Jack had become really active on their journey long before Stephen and Jacob had wished. He'd worked on repairing the Esmeralda, on refurbishing the O'Higgins and Lindsay's Asp, as well as fitting out this little squadron of ships in which he and his officers were training the Chileans. Hmm. So this kind of, this world of building up and reinforcing the Chilean Navy is kind of going on almost, yeah, almost undisturbed. But I think we still got a worry about what's going to happen with Jack Aubrey here. Aubrey himself, we learn, was very tired, irritable, much thinner, walking with a stick, and more snappish than his oldest shipmate could remember. I'm like, that's got to be pretty darn snappish because he's had some low moods <laughs> his various right. times as commander of the surprise. Jack barks at Stephen for pressing on his leg so hard when Stephen's checking it out for a possible deep infection. And we know this is giving Stephen some misgivings. If the wound is so tender, is there this deep-seated infection? That would be really, really bad news. After he wraps the leg, he gets an apology from Jack, who says, I'm sorry I called out. I was just feeling it a bit. Stephen, he says, is a very forgiving creature. And he, Jack needs a great deal of forgiveness these days. He says he's feeling very out of sorts. He's lost some old shipmates and he's upset at the surprise getting knocked about. But he says what's really worrying him is the men who are discontented at not having been paid. None of the prize money that was due to them has been shared out yet. They're going to be going ashore, unable to afford, as Jack calls it, a sailor's pleasure, meaning the company of women. Without that, he says, the men can grow mutinous. And we've seen signs of it before. The other officers on the surprise have seen signs of it here now. And it's going to be especially dangerous since they'll be ashore off and on for some time. Jack ashore, he says, is often an ass. <laughs> Which is a little moment of self-inside by Jack Aubrey. Yes, Jack. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. The men may desert because, of course, they're, they're not ashore on an island. They're ashore on the continent of South America, and they could go anywhere. He's not as worried about his well-tried old shipmates, but he notes that there are some right hard men aboard. They're okay for stores for a few weeks, and he's asked Adams to hand out $2 to each man. But, he says, trailing off, 
when stores and dollars are gone. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> well, they head to dinner in a coach attended by trumpets, drums, and a fair amount of cheering by the local populace. And at dinner, Jack sits at Miguel Carrera's right hand with Stephen on a smaller chair kind of interposed between them in order to translate. And during dinner, Jack answers questions about the young men training to be naval officers. Jack is effusive in his praise towards them. But other than that, he's pretty quiet throughout the dinner. Towards the end of the dinner, Jack asks Stephen to ask the president for a word following dinner. Carrera says he'd be honored and asks Stephen to tell the captain that the Supreme Director has just informed him, he's just received notice, that the grant of the captain's estate has been confirmed by a unanimous vote of leadership. Now, when Jack is told this by Stephen, he asks Stephen to convey his thanks to the director. But Mm. O'Brien writes in a way that sounds like this is not what's on Jack's mind. No, no, no. So we, we've heard this name already a couple of times now, Miguel Carrera. Is, is it worth digging into the, the history? Is there, is there a real connection there? Well, it, it is a real guy. This uh, Jose Miguel Carrera Verdugo mm-hmm. was actually a Chilean soldier who was educated and fought in Spain until he returned back to Chile in 1811, where, according to the Patrick O'Brien Muster book, he, he pretty much forced himself up to be the head of the new nationalist government, particularly down here you know, in the South. He didn't make alliances with either O'Higgins or San Martin and was forced from his position in 1814. Now, uh, two of his brothers tried to you know, kind of regain his leadership. They were executed. And he plotted from other South American countries to return. Those brothers were uh, executed by San Martin's forces in 1818. And when he came back pretty much to get his revenge about over the deaths of his brothers, you know, he attacked from Argentina in 1821 and was himself seized and put to death. So we're getting kind of a nice view of Carrera in, in the canon, but it sounds like a little bit of a different view in history. Right, right. Well, that's the that's the treat of writing fiction, right? You can make people anything you want them to be. <laughs> right. So after dinner, talking over brandy, this Carrera, our Carrera, says that he's glad to bring news of the estate. And he's talking here about an estate of land that's been granted to Jack Aubrey. It's far away, he says. It's been neglected by its royalist former owner, but there's a river and there are possibilities for irrigation on the 6,000 acres. And Jack listens to the translation from Stephen, which comes across in a very expressionless delivery, thinking that this is pretty gross. This is pretty sleazy, even for a Spaniard. This is arid land south of the Biobia River. It's inhabited by these very formidable warlike Araucanian Indians, the one that we spoke about a few chapters ago. Most of it's covered with Chilean pine, known as the monkey puzzle tree. But by the way, Mike, I've, I've got a strong image in my head of monkey puzzle trees in people's front gardens. I, I think it's so-called because a an English barrister saw one of these growing in a Cornwall garden, albeit later than our canon's time, 1850, and said it would puzzle a monkey to climb that tree. Anyhow, Jack's not impressed with this idea of the grant of land. And see, it seems like a really crude and gross attempt to give out some kind of a sop to Jack Aubrey and dodge the question of the real payment for his real services. He asks again that his gratitude to the director should be conveyed, but he says he's primarily concerned about his men who have not been paid. They had seized treasure at Valdivia, a considerable amount, and that had not been shared out yet. The prize court hasn't made a decision on the Esmeralda's value yet, and he gets really, really shirty with Carrera. No, he says, let me finish speaking, if you please. Carrera obviously thought his cold fury as impressive as did Stephen. And Jack goes on to say that he'd been passed from ministry to secretariat, from one high-placed man to another, to influential friends and back again ever since he had reached Chile. And now he says, my people in the height of victory have not sixpence in their pockets for a pot of beer. And I tell you, sir, this will not do. And he goes on to lay out his, what you might call his ultimatum. 
When he goes to Santiago tomorrow, Carrera is to tell Mr. O'Higgins and the other colleagues that this will not do. Only a great deal of money, the money that they have earned and won legitimately, will satisfy his men and his officers. And, says Aubrey, they must have it by the end of the month. Do you understand me, sir? And this is a big moment, Mike. Has has Jack um, overstepped his mark by getting insubordinate like he sometimes can? Or is he in the right of it? How's this going to play out, do you think? Well, it's fascinating. Our Carrera, it's sounding a little bit different than the biographical one, says he understands him and regrets the present state of affairs, and he will present it to the men who make decisions there. He says, but before he goes in the morning, he would like to do himself the honor of sending a letter to the captain's most distinguished ship. Well, Jack says, very good. And thanks him for, as the text says, the truly splendid feast. I particularly valued the Christmas pudding, he added with a look of fury, and for your comprehension. He ends by asking Carrera to tell his colleagues that they have until the end of the month. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here banging the table, and, uh, and Stephen Matron's right, right with us, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. In their coach after this meal, after this encounter, Stephen tells Jack the same thing that I want to tell Jack. He says, by God, you did that in style, brother. And I'm like, yeah, you tell him, you tell him. Jack says he can't dislike the man, even though he's a politician. Carrera has a nephew aboard the Gladiator, a ship uh, who speaks perfect English and is already half a sailor. And Jack, once again, maybe a bit naively, is willing to associate. And anybody who's got good, good vibes with the Navy has got good vibes as far as Jack Aubrey is concerned, whether that's borne out in truth or not. Early the next morning, it's that nephew who brings his uncle's letter to the surprise. At 6 a.m., Killick brings the letter to Jack with his morning draft, won't give him the letter until he swallows the draft, and Jack asks for Stephen. And Killick says, no, 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 he's in the fishing market turning over some old-fashioned lobsters. Oh, no, I tell a lie. That's him falling down the companionway and cursing in foreign. (laughs) Again, a, a nice little moment... As it turns out, I think the last bit of dialogue we get from Killick, it's classic, classic Killick. <laughs> it is. O'Brien had a had a great description of Killick and what Killick did, you know, kind of a look back through the cadet, which we which didn't include here, but definitely go back and catch that here. But we had to catch him with his description of Stephen here. Oh, yeah. Well, Stephen gets himself put back together with Killick's help, comes in and reads Carrera's note of thanks to Jack for attending his dinner. And Carrera writes that there's a couple of enclosed papers. The first one orders the chief cashier to deliver 5,000 pieces of eight to any officer the captain chooses to send. And the other paper is to the officer in charge of the naval shipyard, and it requires him to send the captain anything that he and his ship may require. And Jack is very pleased now. He cries that it's very handsome of Carrera. And he's so happy that they're going to be able to fill their now bare cupboards. Stephen reports that while he was on shore this morning, he noticed that they're repairing the big old Chilean frigate. Jack says, the O'Higgins. And Stephen says, no, actually, they're changing the name from O'Higgins to San Martin. And Jack says, well, that's a damned unlucky thing to do for a ship. And then he adds, well, it might also be unlucky for them says that O'Higgins was their friend, but that Jack doesn't care for what he's seen of San Martin, and he doesn't think San Martin cares for him. Ah, But he finishes, and the text says, but there's very little we can do about it apart from knocking the place down around their own ears with their own powder and shot, something he says he hesitates to do because all the friends he has in town. But he says they're going to carry on with their survey. And if the Chileans turn awkward, shuffle or backwater, he will ask Stephen to write a handsome letter of resignation for Jack and that they'll sail away home. Now, he says between now and the end of the month, this 30 days he's given him, he's going to take the pick of the young men out to survey the Chonos Archipelago after they've filled the ship with stores. 
The next day, the surprise and its squadron is and in an exactly straight and exactly spaced line uh, as they leave to the cheers and applause of everybody ashore here. It's, it's a great moment. I've got a nice visual image of these ships in perfect sailing order, exactly in Navy style. The sloops, each of them have a first and second captain, a Chilean first and second captain, which is a local custom. And Jack has those guys on the quarterdeck with him now by turn, learning how to do things in Royal Navy fashion. Stephen is there to translate some of the terms for those who only speak Spanish, but it's limited, of course, by Stephen's own lack of knowledge of some of the English nautical terms. He knows some of them in English and not at all in Spanish. And one day, as they're off on this training expedition and surveying expedition, uh, Jack comments that he wishes they'd brought Amos Jacob with them to help with the Spanish. And Stephen reminds Jack that, in fact, they'd left Jacob in Valparaiso with Jack's consent for the possible transmission of a particular message. Uh Dare I say, Mike, stick a pin in that. (laughs) Right, right. Stephen says, oh, yes, you're right. I beg your pardon. And uh, this is clearly a little awkward moment uh, of forgetfulness by Jack. And Stephen covers it nicely and says, Captain dear, a glass of wine with you. Now, they're on this training expedition and Jack knows that you sweat hard in training so that you bleed a little less in battle, right? So he works the crews hard, but there's none of the harsh driving that is so usual at sea. These days pass in a cheerful, good-natured way. Jack was only a little less than kind when the young men under his command had showed some kind of grave ignorance of navigation. He was using acting master Daniel and midshipman Hansen to help. And he invited the young men of the Chilean faction who were making the most navigational progress to dine with him in the cabin in pairs. And Mike, this, this is a really nice little episode. I can almost imagine a a little a video montage in a movie of this book, <laughs> of this kind of happy situation. Yes. <laughs> One day, he and Stephen are walking on land and Jack remarks to Stephen what a pleasant set of young fellows the Chileans are. Uh, he says, at least a dozen will make real sailors. Lord, what a change after those miserable, untrustworthy politicians. Stephen says he's got the right of it. But he stops and says, Jack, what, what are they doing to the poor surprise? And Jack tells Stephen that Harding's showing the trainees who did not bring Jack and Stephen ashore how to heave the ship down and scrape the weed from the parts of the bottom that they can reach. Jack continues his explanation until he notices that Stephen has his attention focused on a bird. Stephen begs Jack's pardon and says he's almost certain that bird was a snipe. He asks if Jack saw it. Jack says, well, he's more likely to see a beaver in the Royal Exchange before he sees a snipe in Chile. And Stephen says that Carrera said that a snipe, the same one they have in England, is the first breeding bird to come down to Chile on migration. And Stephen's delighted because he's been so upset heretofore that, like on so many of their journeys, he thought they were once again in this gap between the time when winter migrants have departed before the spring migrants have arrived. And now, he says, he's filled with hope. And Ian, hmm. we're, we're kind of getting, I think, into one of the last sort of nature standing in as, you know, kind of representative of of a little bit of foreshadowing of what's to come here. Yes, absolutely. O'Brien says that he may well have been filled with hope, but weeks later, he's talking here about Stephen, weeks later, sitting on a cold gray Chonos Island, Stephen still hadn't seen any of the exotic migrant birds that he'd been hoping for. Today, in his sights, there were only a local male and a female oyster catcher with no great interest in each other, not the breeding season, whatever the snipe might think. And it might not be the season of sudden joys, but it is the 30th of the month. This is the day that Jack had laid down as the day by which his financial affairs must be resolved or he would break with the Chileans. So Jack's fate is going to be decided in the next day, and neither possibility that he can foresee leads to any evident happiness. And... This is a moment when we know O'Brien's going to do something for us in the storytelling line. And here it comes. A green brig comes into view. It looks like the one that belongs to Jacob's Chilean gem merchant friend in Valparaiso. 
looking through his telescope, Stephen sees Jacob looking at him, and as the, as the text says, making signals, something about untimely mirth. And as it moves behind a headland or an island, Stephen loses sight of the brig. There are two black-necked swans flying low over the water, and he can hear the rhythmic beating of their wings. And as you say, Mike, this is the last moment, perhaps, in the canon where we get uh, a, a, a nature creature or a natural metaphor alerting us to something that's coming in the story. We'll, we'll jump on the black neck swans in a second. Around Stephen's neck, wrapped in two waxed silk bags, is the replacement for Stephen's repeater watch, his breguet. And he hears it sounding. He catches sight of the surprises jolly boat pulling fast in a contrary wind and realizing that he's all on his own here and he might need the help of the jolly boat Stephen jumps up waves and hoots to make sure that he's not being marooned as he has been a couple of times before right he has he has and uh, do you want to tell us then mike about black-necked swans because surely like all the other bird references this is not an accident well it's interesting you know i i couldn't help i saw this and i was thinking back to the uh to the praying mantis in Master and Commander, the rhinoceros, the eagle dropping the, you know, we've had so many of these uh, references throughout the canon. And these black neck swans, as usual for O'Brien, spot on, beautiful birds, uh, absolutely from that part of South America. And, you know, we've got uh, O'Brien and uh, in the form of Stephen, you know, kind of looking for birds and then seeing this mated couple. And I thought, well, maybe this is the one last Easter egg here too. Now, I thought, why why these beautiful black neck swans, besides the fact that they're a little exotic and they're local, they've got these beautiful you know, black necks, black heads. They've got this white mark that goes around their eye and continues back, uh, kind of a red thing on their beak. Uh, so, you know, maybe we put out a little picture here. But I... I was reading and I thought, well, maybe this is because, you know, they bait for life. They share their parenting responsibilities equally. Maybe it's one of those kind of, you know, poke at the patriarchy uh, things. But then I was directed to an, a Wall Street Journal article from June 16th, 2016 by Jennifer Ackerman called Why Bird Fathers Are Superior. And it points out that unlike mammals, where you know males of the species in less than 5% of the species care for their young, in birds, 85 to 90% of bird species, males and females contribute equally to the feeding and guardian of their huh. young. So right. not only is this a, a great reference for South America, but O'Brien can sort of say, okay, here it is, you know, mammals versus birds. What kind of, you know, who makes a great dad? And I'm thinking about O'Brien's personal situation. Going, yeah, maybe this is weighed on his mind from time to time here. So there's some great pictures maybe we could get out. There's one cheesy little video, I think, from one of the zoos or something that actually talks about this parental nurturing that's uh, keen in black neck swan. So um, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And uh, thank you, O'Brien, for one final meaningful and touching bird reference. It's really good. Now, when Stephen comes aboard the surprise, Jacob greets him. And Stephen can read on Jacob's brow the, the news, the implication that a coded signal has come in. They go below to a discreet part of the ship. Jacob explains that this cable came in right after the government messenger had arrived from Santiago. And Jacob, he says, hadn't had time to decode the entire thing. But he thought he would bring what he had to get it to the person concerned at once. Because he's clearly read something in it, having just decoded the first part. He jerks his head and looks upward. And Stephen realizes that this gesture means that the message relates to Jack. And Jacob then tells Stephen how delighted he was when he had passed the heavy sloop of war that had left Valparaiso before Jacob could find the owner of the brig. He shows Stephen then, having got here somewhat by chance, what he's decoded. We don't hear what it is. He gives Stephen the rest of the coded message and the key. Stephen reads and says, yes, we must tell Jack what this is at once. Jacob says, he's your particular friend. 
you should go and tell him. And this, this is a beautiful, I mean, it's not very extended. It's a really tiny little moment, but it's a little emotional drum roll for something that Jack Aubrey is about to hear about. And Stephen's going to deliver it alone before the Chilean government official arrives. It's funny. You know, I was wondering, I thought, well, wait a minute. Is this good news? Is this bad news? Stephen's going to deliver it alone? Wait a minute. What's the news that's coming from the Chilean official that probably Jacob has an inkling about, but wants to make sure he gets this to Jack ahead of time? Well, Stephen takes the message, the code-breaking key, and the translated part walks towards the cabin and tells Adams that he would like a private word with a captain in the cabin. Adams is kind of surprised by this extraordinary request, but seeing that Stephen is in earnest, he hurries on deck and Jack comes into the cabin moments later, looking surprised and a little bit concerned. And Stephen explains that a signal has just come in. It's not all decoded, but the opening is addressed to Jack by name and by ship. And Stephen offers to read it to him if he'd like him to. And that Stephen says, I'll continue to try to decode the rest as, as we move on. And, and Jack says, you know, yes, go ahead. And Stephen reads, immediately upon receipt of the present orders, you will proceed to the river plate. There joining the South African squadron, you will go aboard HMS Implacable, hoisting your flag blue at the mizzen and take command of the blue squadron. Yay, right. I know. This is, I mean, this is what we've been waiting for. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, we heard Stephen's reaction earlier to Jack having read, you know, this really touching news from Sophie at home. I'm kind of wondering how it's going to go now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it says that Jack sat down, bowing his face in his hands. He was almost unmanned, but after a moment, he did say, Read that again, will you, Stephen? Stephen did so, and Jack said, By God, Stephen, I am so glad it was you brought me this news. Sophie will be so happy. By God, I never thought my flag would come. Ah, Jack, if only you knew the title of the novel in which this story was being told, you might have had a hint. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Oh, it's fantastic. So Stephen passes on more good news. He says... There are hearty congratulations from the Duke of Clarence, of course, the uncle slash father of Midshipman Hansen. Hearty congratulations for the Kayao action, a personal message from Midshipman Hansen, a request to please send Horatio home as soon as possible so we can sit for his lieutenant's exam. And there are some political considerations uh, from Sir Joseph that have to be decoded. And then Stephen gets to say the magic words, may I congratulate you too, Admiral Deer. And he embraces Jack. And Mike, this would be every day between friends, even friends in uniform service, I think. But this is the first time I think Stephen and Jack have done any more than shake each other's hands. (laughs) At least that that we've read about. Yeah. Oh, great. Jack says, it's all very glorious, he says, but he's, he's tied by the leg. He's engaged. He's committed, that is, to the Chilean government. And O'Brien points out that at this moment, the Chilean government in the person of Carrera is climbing up the side, carrying a letter. When Harding brings Carrera in, Jack offers him sherry and begs his pardon while he reads the letter from the Chilean government. Carrera says he's sorry and ashamed for what it contains. The men in Santiago beg for three more months and then all debts will be paid. Jack says... He's sorry to have to say it, but given their one-month agreement, Carrera will have to take his excellent and most promising young man aboard the sloop because he, Jack, is required to sail in another direction. And Carrera gets a little bit of love back from Jack at the end. Please rest assured of my personal esteem for you and of my very best possible wishes for the Chilean Navy of the future. And the ship's part company after uh, lots of goodwill and hearty reciprocal cheering. The text reads, after a last salute, Jack glanced aloft, still the sweet west wind. And then he looked fore and aft, a fine clear deck, hands all at their stations and all beaming with pleasure. 
and turning to the master, he said, Mr. Hansen, pray lay me a course for Cape Pilar and Magellan Strait. The end. <laughs> the end of Blue at the Mizzen, the end of chapter 10, the end of the last full book in the canon. Wow, Mike. Who, who would have thought, eh? Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and we're still going. And we're still going. Oh, congratulations, man. Yeah. Now, it, it, it's fascinating. Let's, let's have a little bit of a think about the book and the, and the chapter here. I, I don't think we're in the right place yet to think about the whole canon, but let's think, think about this for what it is as a book. Um, we, we had this fun little thing at the beginning of the chapter where um, we, we had... The, the happy Christmas message kind of corrected for us that we were in November. We, we have the, the slight error then at the end of the chapter, Mr. Hansen being named as the master, and clearly it was Mr. Daniel who was the master. When we get to book 21, the unfinished final book, which we'll come to in a few months from now, um, we'll get to talking about the objections that there are to publishing the, the unrevised, unedited pages from Patrick O'Brien's partial book 21. But we can see, and we've, we've talked about it a bit all the way through this book as well, that the revising and editing, which had always been a, a key part of the process and which was a, uh, a, a key role that Mary had, editing and revising was playing a more and more important role in the later books. And this is clearly the consequence of Anno Domini, right? O'Brien is an elderly man at this point, and he's wrestling with ideas and characters and storylines that have, some of which have been in his head for decades, and some of which are are new in his imagination as he sits there writing. I couldn't help, Ian, but to, to myself, you know, I, I know that feeling. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, my hat is off to him, writing, you know, now at, at this age, the way he is. Uh, well, it's clear to me anyway that, you know, reading this book, that O'Brien can still tell an excellent story. Yeah. And, and that despite, you know, kind of, as I said, starting too late in the timeline for a series of 20 books, we remember that O'Brien said, you know, he, when he realized how many books there would be, how successful they'd become, he wished he'd started earlier in the Napoleonic Wars. He still, I, I think, brought this story to the end of its natural arc, you know, blue at the mizzen, Jack's flag has come. So while I, I know there's always discussion about, you know, gosh, I'd really love to have so many more books. Oh, wow. What about, you know, 21? And he has set up a nice book here, but it's also to me a great ending to the book, a great ending to 20 books. It really is. Um, we get the, the, the payoff of Jack making his flag. And I'm pretty sure that's been mentioned in, in, in many chapters and certainly in every single book in the canon. Right. By the way, I'll just mention, we, we were talking about the, the Thomas Cochrane timeline before. Cochrane's timeline was not over and done uh, at the stage of the taking of the Esmeralda. It, but his campaign in Chile was was done, but the Aubrey arc and the Cochrane arc took different paths at this point. Cochrane was not afflicted at that stage by flag sickness, at least not particularly and not at that stage in his career. He would eventually become an admiral, but only after he'd been entirely reinstated and brought back to the active list many, many, many years later. He was afflicted, like Aubrey, with a shortage of ready cash, but in, the, in Cochrane's case, he simply helped himself to the treasure that he knew the location of that had been captured in the earlier action at Valdivia and part of company with the Chileans soon afterwards, without the kind of esteem that uh, Jack was talking about with respect to Mr. Carrera. But still, Mike, we've, we've had another book, as you say, with the storytelling muse of O'Brien still in good form. We've had Easter eggs, fantastic digging into the uh, the book of Job with you just now, just now. Plenty of reality, as we've said, from the nautical history. We've had humor, we've had action. We've had this really still very, very great writing, very characterful, very poetic. And like all the way along, we've had this relationship of Jack and Stephen now so mature and playing itself out in such a subtle and low-key way, but also I think such a real way. Yeah. After all the burials at sea and all the deaths that we had in the books, especially since the book that came after uh, the, the death of Mary O'Brien, it's nice that we didn't lose any more cherished characters in this last chapter. I'm just... We're really, really glad that we didn't have that to deal with. And maybe, Mike, I don't know, maybe that's a sign that O'Brien himself was starting to feel a little bit better about things. Boy, I, yeah, I, I'd sure love to believe that. I'd, I'd sure hope that, that, you know, we don't have to kind of kill everybody off here. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
it, it's interesting, Ian. I mean, normally we'd be finishing book 20 and we'd be setting up book 21 and all our unanswered mm-hmm. questions. But I think we don't have to do that quite yet. No, we don't. Um, we will eventually get round to the, the unfinished voyage of Jack Aubrey. As some of you have heard us say, I haven't read it yet. I've got it on my shelf, but I haven't read it yet. We guess that Stephen and Jack are headed home and or for Africa. Um, let's just talk about what's coming next for The Lubber's Hole, because we've said this is the end of the last complete book in the canon, but it's not the end for the show. You've heard us say this before, but let's repeat it just now. We're going to take a week off. For, for New Year's, we're going to take a week off. So we'll give you a short New Year's message in substitute for an episode next week. And then we're back to, we're back to post-captain. If you can remember all the way back, we covered post-captain a little bit more quickly and a, in a fair bit less depth than we've been covering the later books in the canon. So it's only fair to us and to the book and to you guys to give ourselves the chance to go and do post-captain in our more in-depth pace. And then... Ah, it's going to be hard to resist the temptation to cover HMS Surprise in the same way. So we'll do that too. That means that we've got a look at those two books. We'll take a quick look at some of the other early O'Brien nautical novels. We've got some great interviews in the pipeline to share with you for 2024. And then we will be finishing off the whole story of The Lubber's Hole later this year when we get to the final unfinished book. Ah, Mike. It's great, great to be here. Um, I, I guess we want to say Merry Christmas for last week. Happy holidays to everybody. Uh, we want to say Happy New Year. Uh, we wish you all a peaceful and successful 2024 with and perhaps later without the lover's hole. I would love to ask everybody what we just say next year to just a little bit more lover's hole. Mike, I for one should like that of all things. I guess so they might just as well have said god save the king or you know <laughs> no that's that's it i'll, I'll leave yeah. it at god save the king <laughs> <laughs> <Bloody hell. laughs>